what we're going to do, I'll just give you an overview here of the next three Bible studies. We're going to spend uh, three Bible studies on the life of Solomon. Okay, so we're going to kind of go through five books here during the next three weeks. Um, so we're going to mix in the historical part we find in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And then, of course, we get the writings. Not all of this was written by Solomon, but uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Uh, we're gonna, today, we just talk about one book, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. These are not arranged chronologically. They're, they're ordered in your Bible by length of the book. And so Song of Songs, I, would, I think everyone, commentator would agree, this is written early in the life of Solomon. Well, some would think that Solomon didn't write it, but uh, we're going to go with the assumption that he did write the Song of Solomon. So we're going to talk about the early life of uh, Solomon and consider what is there to say about uh, a book that really doesn't talk about God. Okay, so let's pray as we begin. Father, just ask that uh, you would come close to each one here. Help us to redirect our thoughts toward you. Uh, reveal something to us about you just now. Amen. So a little bit uh, from the story. You know, it started out very well with Solomon. So we spent two weeks on the, the good things, the wisdom of Solomon. So from 1 Kings, Solomon loved the Lord and followed the instructions of his father David. And of course, you all know the story, what happened, that um, you know, dot, 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 some things happened, but that night the Lord appeared to him in a dream and asked him, what would you like me to give you? It's incredible. What would you, what would you ask for? God came to you in the middle of the night and asked you that. Remind me, of course, a genie here, we get at least three wishes, but Solomon got one wish, and what would be... Uh, important to ask for. Well, it's also kind of interesting just to think how different sometimes the Old Testament <clears throat> mentality is with the New Testament mentality, <clears throat> just in terms of rewards and punishments. In the Old Testament, if you obey God, you're rewarded. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, when we went through that, <clears throat> boy, if you obey, you'll be blessed. Okay? Prosperity, wealth, all kinds of things are promised uh, for obedience in the Old Testament. What's the reward for obedience in the New Testament? In this life. Uh, what did Jesus say? If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. Take up your cross and follow me. I mean, the promise for followers of Christ would seem to be uh, persecution in this life. It's a very different picture uh, than we get in the Old Testament. Okay, but here Solomon is asked... What do you want? Of course, his request was wonderful. He answered, You always showed great love for my father David, your servant, and he was good, loyal, and honest in his relation with you. And you've continued to show him your great and constant love by giving him a son who today rules in his place. O oh Lord God, you have let me succeed my father as king, even though I am very young and don't know how to rule. I think it really exhibits some humility in this prayer, doesn't he? I don't know how to rule. Here I am among the people you've chosen to be your own, a people who are so many that they cannot be counted. So give me the wisdom I need to rule your people with justice and to know the difference between good and evil. Otherwise, how would I ever be able to rule this great people of yours? And the Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for this. And so he said to him, because you have asked for the wisdom to rule justly, and notice the alternatives here that God lists that probably many people would have asked for, instead of long life, for yourself, or riches, or the death of your enemies, I will do what you have asked, and I will give you more wisdom and understanding than anyone has ever had before or will ever have again. Now we'd have to 
maybe put a little footnote here, because remember Jesus came along and said, someone here is greater than Solomon. I think we'd have to put Jesus as a, uh, quite a few notches above Solomon in terms of wisdom. Okay, and of course, Solomon became a fool late in life because of uh, some of the choices that he made. But we're going to go through two incredible books that I think uh, do reveal some of this wisdom. Okay, well, God gave Solomon unusual wisdom and insight and knowledge too great to be measured. Solomon was wiser than the wise men of the East or the wise men of Egypt. He was the wisest of all men, and his fame spread throughout all the neighboring countries. He composed 3,000 proverbs. Okay, we just have a few of them. And more than 1,000 songs. Okay, the one we're going to go through is called the Song of Songs, probably his, his greatest song, presumably. He spoke of trees and plants from the Lebanon cedars to the hyssop that grows on walls. He talked about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Kings all over the world heard of his wisdom and sent people to listen to him. Okay, so next time we're going to talk about what is wisdom. We'll spend a long time discussing what, is, what does that really mean. But now we're going to go over the, the Song of Songs. And this is probably, well, it's certainly one of the most debated books in the entire Bible. Um, there, the whole range of uh, interpretations of this book, um, from very literal to allegorical, uh, is this a drama, a love poem, and some have argued, does this really even belong in the Bible at all? There's only one verse that you can perhaps get the word God in there, but most translations don't choose to translate the verse that way. So it's a, it's a love story, but, but how are we to understand it? How, how is this important in terms of our understanding of God? Um, this is not a, um, you read through it, you might not appreciate the symmetry of uh, this book, but it's really quite incredible. Uh, there are these uh, patterns of the lovers, okay? They're apart from one another, they're yearning from one another, they're united with one another. And this repeats in this, uh, there are seven chiastic units, and it's really interesting. We could spend some time here uh, going from A, B, C, D to C prime, B prime, A prime, and we could, what we could do is line up here the beginning of the book with the end of the book, and how they're kind of uh, parallels, mirror images of each other. And then B goes with B prime. So it has this uh, chiastic structure um, that is really interesting. And a number of people have done some good work trying to um, put all this together. Okay, so it's, it's a <clears throat> meticulously composed book. What does it mean? I had to leave out a few verses in, in reading the Song of Solomon. You know, young boys in church, often for entertainment or whatever, might uh, uh, read this. Okay, but we'll, we'll just give you a sense of, um, um, of the book. So it starts out, Solomon's most excellent love song. That's how the Net Bible translates the opening. Oh, how I wish you would kiss me passionately, for your lovemaking is more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your colognes is delightful. Your name is like the finest perfumes. No wonder the young women adore you. Draw me after you. Let us hurry. May the king bring me into his bedchambers. Again, our question is, um, we've said the book, the Bible is a book that reveals who God is. Okay, what are we learning about God in, in reading about all of this? And we'll skip forward. How beautiful you are, my love. How your eyes shine with love behind your veil. Your hair dances like a flock of goats bounding down the hills of Gilead. Now, we need to update the, uh, the metaphors and the language here to make this fit for today. So you might want, not want to use some of these lines. But your teeth are as white as sheep that have just been shorn and washed. Not one of them is missing. That may be remarkable. 
They're all perfectly matched. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. How lovely they are when you speak. Your cheeks glow behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, round and smooth, with a necklace like a thousand shields hung around it. And the Net Bible, for all the good things, there are over almost 70,000 translators' notes. The Song of Solomon makes up uh, many pages. They'll have one verse, and then the whole rest of the page is translators' notes, struggling with how to translate. I'm not sure they did a good job with this passage here, but we'll read it anyway. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O nobleman's daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a master craftsman. Your navel is a round mixing bowl. I thought that was interesting. May it never, never lack mixed wine. Now, your belly is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Uh, boy, that's, I don't know, that's flattering. Your belly is a mound of wheat. But maybe back in that time, it was. Your neck is like a tower made of ivory. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. I, I don't know if you want to compare a nose to that. Um, So, there are some interesting descriptions here. Now, the literal interpretation, this is from a Bible commentary, has been rejected many times by both Jewish and Christian interpreters. The reason given for not considering the book a love song is the feeling that a sacred book should not be about the passion and joys of love between a man and a woman. Um, Is that true? Well, that's how many uh, interpret it. Uh, We can't take this as a literal story, a love story. That doesn't belong in the Bible. And continuing on, on, because of its explicit language, ancient and modern Jewish sages forbid men to read the book before they were 30, (laughs) and presumably kept women from reading it at all. So I don't know if uh, I'm the only one above 30 here in this room, but you'd all have to leave, I guess, for the rest of the Bible study. Well, anyway, so there are some challenges there. And then we have people on the other side who are completely um, enthralled with this book. This is a a well-known rabbi who wrote that the whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the scriptures are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. Okay, had a very high opinion of this book. And then there was this uh, Bernard of uh, Clairvaux, okay, around uh, 1090 to 1153. And you can read, he wrote... Uh, 86 sermons on just the first two chapters of the Song of Solomon. And he went through every single detail, uh, the kiss, a dove, everything. He was uh, highly uh, interpreted. And so, you know, there's again someone who had an extremely high opinion of this book. Okay, so I guess the question is, um, how do we understand it? Uh, Do we believe that, uh, of course, God who ordained marriage. I mean, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. Okay, the love that happens between a man and a woman, uh, the incredible things that come out of that. You just think of, uh, we have the ability to create little people in our own image. That's, that's quite amazing that, that comes out of this. Um, would it make sense to have a book that actually celebrates something that is a, a good thing? Can we look at it that way? Let's try to imagine here. What if we didn't, I mean, God could have done things differently. We didn't have to have a family, two people coming together in love, having children, having a family. God could have done things, I'm sure, in many different ways. Uh, Can we imagine what life would be like if you take away that that family structure that that all begins with two people uh, coming together in love? What would it be like just to just imagine, you know, without your family? 
and um, all of that uh, structure and support and love and so on, what would life be like? Well, I think uh, one point maybe we could make about the Song of Solomon is I think God is always trying to teach us uh, what his kingdom is like through lo- many, many different means. And I think uh, this, what happens between a man and a woman, um, I think it is meant to reveal something to us about God's kingdom. In, of course, the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, we lead, read what love is not. Love is not self-seeking. Love is other-seeking. And I think um, certainly, you know, when you fall in love, now, of course, you can fall in love for selfish reasons, just to gratify self, but in a, in a right context, okay, when a man and a woman love each other, they really are loving the other person, serving the other person, giving for the other person. It is perhaps a way to, to get us a little bit in tune into what God's kingdom is like. Okay, so two people come together and have children. All right, and what do you do when you have children? Yeah, you all say, well, that's really cute, but when you actually have children, um, what do you do? I mean, you are a slave to those kids. I mean, it is uh, unbelievable work. I, I remember when our, our son was born, it was very exciting, and I got to spend the first night in the hospital, and after about an hour of sleep, he started crying, you know, and, uh, you know, the first six months, it's just you're up three, four times a night, okay, so you learn to serve these little creatures until they grow up, okay? And it's perhaps another way, the, the, the family, the way this is all designed, to teach us not just to serve ourselves. okay? We begin doing things for other people here in this uh, family environment. And then, of course, in the Ten Commandments, children grow up, and what are they told to do? Honor your father or mother. So it's, it's kind of this uh, circle of love, if we want to think of it that way, okay? Parents serve their children, kids are, grow up, and then are supposed to um, serve their parents. Okay, that's, that's how uh, an ideal family structure uh, would operate. So you're familiar with the famous words in Galatians, let love make you serve one another. For the whole law summed up in one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, and I think the, the falling in love, the family, children, all of this, it's meant to illustrate this principle of God's kingdom. I like this one in Philippians 2. Don't do anything from selfish ambition, or from a cheap desire to boast, but be humble toward one another, always considering others better than yourself. That is very difficult to do, considering others better than yourself. Well, um, again, when you're married, you have kids, you begin to actually think that way about other people. Okay, and Now, this, this can be done in the wrong way. I mean, some parents uh, lavish lots of love on their kids because they're living through their kids. And the success their kids have, they get pride out of that. So uh, some of these things can be distorted, but ideally we begin to love and serve others. Um, so anyway, I thought this was a neat picture that shows family here from beginning to end. So a literal view. I think we could, we could make a good case for a real literal view of the Song of Solomon, that there really was a relationship between Solomon and this Shunammite woman, okay, that this actually happened, and that God gave us love, the ability to fall in love, the freedom to create. It's a good thing, positive thing. Makes sense we'd have a book in the Bible that would celebrate something um, that is a a positive thing. So love, marriage, sexuality, uh, wonderful things given by God. Makes sense to have a book in there. Now, I'd like to make another point. Uh, Actually, a couple other points about this. One is... Uh, we talked about this uh, serving others and all of that. When we look at the Trinity, it's really remarkable when you try to put it all together. You know, Jesus came. We've tried to say many times that he was God in human form. 
Okay, you all know what God is like. Jesus was God with skin on. That's what God looks like. But Jesus didn't come and go around telling everyone, I'm God. It's me. I'm God. Okay, what did he do? He kept telling people about the Father. Okay, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Kept redirecting the focus to what God was like. And when you read on to Philippians, Paul would say that the Father gives the Son, or I guess it's Hebrews, a name that is greater than any other. So that we have the, the Father honoring the Son. Okay, and what's the function of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is ultimately to bring us the truth about God. Uh, the night before Jesus died, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Here's what he's going to do for you. He's going to reveal the truth about God. He said it three times. So the Holy Spirit, among other things, redirects our attention to God and uh, ultimately through God as revealed by Jesus. So in other words, the Trinity, they, they seem to mirror this. They're always honoring the other. And it's uh, kind of interesting how that works. Deflecting praise, it almost seems like. So I think we could make a case for allegory also for the Song of Solomon. And although many would disagree with that, I think um, maybe I can make this a better case by giving some specific examples. It's remarkable who Jesus said this to. These were his enemies. This is right before he's to be crucified. And he said to his enemies, how many times I wanted to put my arms around all your people, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. Interesting God here comparing himself to a mother hen. Okay, so just like in the Song of Solomon, we want to take all of these things and make a specific, literal application, just like we wouldn't make 100 specific applications about God as a mother hen. Okay, but there's one point we could make here, that uh, even towards his enemies, God is like a mother hen towards chicks wanting to take them in. Okay, maybe we're not impressed by that illustration. So God has many more. Of course, as a shepherd, all the way through the Old and New Testament, Lord is my shepherd. Are we moved by the picture of God uh, as a shepherd caring for sheep? Jesus told this uh, moving parable that he would leave the 99 to go find the one that was lost. And Jesus would say of himself, I am the good shepherd who's willing to die for the sheep. Okay, again, we wouldn't make 100 specific applications, but are we getting a big picture here? God keeps trying to paint this uh, picture for us. This is what I'm like. This is how I relate to you. Mother hen, shepherd, uh, if that doesn't work, how about a vineyard owner? And this is interesting in Isaiah 5.1. Who's talking to who? Uh, most believe that it's probably Israel talking to God in this story, but it's, it's very uh, tender language. I will sing to my love a song to my lover about his vineyard. My love had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and we get this wonderful story here about God as a very caring vineyard owner. And the word here, lover, same word used in Song of Solomon. Okay, so God here as a lover uh, with a vineyard. Hey, maybe that illustration doesn't impress. How about this? In Isaiah 49, could a mother forget a child who nurses at her breast? Could she fail to love an infant who came from her own body? Even if a mother could forget, I will never forget you. I mean, if God even drawing a parallel with a nursing mother and himself. Again, we wouldn't make a hundred applications of this, but are we getting a, a big picture here in many different ways, a variety of ways, God's trying to show us, this is what I'm like. Okay, this is how I want to relate to you. Okay, my favorite parable that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son. Remember the son's out feeding the pigs, and finally he comes back home, not really for the best reasons, just though the food's better at home, okay, but he's on his way back. And the, the point 
of the story here is the attitude of the father. Notice, when he was still a long way from home, when his father saw him and his heart was filled with pity, he ran through his arms around his son and kissed him. Okay, God is a father. Okay, maybe you haven't had a good father, but uh, many people have, so we can kind of relate to that a little bit. We appreciate that God is like that father. Even if we've left his side, he's watching down the road, and uh, you know the, the son wanted to give a big speech of repentance, and when you read it, it just seems like the father interrupted him. Oh, it's enough of that. Put his robe around him and had a celebration. Well, maybe we need another uh, way to describe how God relates to this. And we tend to think of God as a master-servant relationship. And, and certainly uh, that is true, but that wouldn't seem to be the ideal because Jesus said to his disciples, I do not call you servants any longer because servants do not know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. Okay, so if we've had friends, maybe we get a little glimpse. If you have a real friend, you're honest with them. That's why we've emphasized so much Abraham, David, Jeremiah, who were uh, brutally honest with God told God exactly what was on their mind, sometimes in not very friendly words. But, you know, that's how you talk with a friend sometimes. You're very honest. Okay, maybe that's another glimpse into what God is like. Well, um, certainly there is um, legal, judicial uh, kind of language in the Bible. Um, and so we, we need to understand that. We need to fit that into our model of things. Uh, the problem is, in, in Western Christianity, this has far and away become the dominant way of viewing everything. Okay, and we tend to put everything in a legal framework. Okay, but there is a downside. If, if we're leaving aside the, the mother hen illustration, the friend illustration, God is a shepherd, uh, God is a lover, all of these other things, and if our primary picture of God is only as a judge, well, that can, that can distance God. That's why we have all these other illustrations. And what I find fascinating is in the Gospel of John, which has more to say about the judgment, uh, certainly than any other gospel, uh, judgment in the Gospel of John is entirely revelatory. And we'll just read a little bit here. Jesus would say, nor does the Father himself judge anyone. Yeah, we would be relieved. The Father doesn't judge anyone. He has given the Son the full right to judge. Well, the question is, how does the Son judge? And um, here in John 12, this description, Jesus would say, if people hear my message and do not obey it, I will not judge them. You reject Jesus and he will not judge you. Here's one of the clearest statements on the judgment. Those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. Who's that? The words I have spoken will be their judge on the last day. Much more needs to be said about this, but we need to put all of this together and understand the judgment. Certainly God is judge. It would be thankful for that, but let's not that image of God, not let that image of God completely obliterate all of the other descriptions of God and how he relates to us. So again, coming back to the Song of Songs, having made all those other illustrations, I think it would be fair to say of the Song of Songs that the relationship you can have with God is no less intense than a young couple in love. Would it be fair to say that about the Song of Solomon? Um, well, fortunately, this is not the only book that refers to God as a, as a husband. In fact, I would have to say, if you just are going to list all of the different ways, that this is really the dominant metaphor. Okay, there's so much, so much of this all the way through. Um, actually, let me just quote, this is the one passage in uh, Song of Solomon, 
that can sometimes be translated as God. But um, here it's the passion of love bursting into flame is more powerful than death, stronger than the grave. Love cannot be drowned by oceans or floods. It cannot be bought no matter what is offered. This is kind of the climax, I think, of of the book of uh, Song of Solomon. Question is, uh, would we relate that to God and his love for us? There there isn't time to go through all of the marriage, husband, wife illustrations in the Bible, but just to list a few. In Isaiah 54, for your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you back from your grief as though you were a young wife, abandoned by her husband, says your God. Jeremiah 2, same thing. The Lord told me to proclaim this message to everyone in Jerusalem. I remember how faithful you were when you were young, how you loved me when we were first married. You followed me through the desert, through a land that had not been planted, And sometimes God is just very, very gracious here. He describes this uh, marching through Egypt when they first left as like a a couple that were falling in love. And when you read the account, of course, the people are just rebelling and complaining. Okay, kind of gracious of God to seems to put a good spin on it here. Okay, and I think uh, perhaps most moving of all in the Old Testament is this description in Ezekiel uh, 16. When you were born, no one cut your umbilical cord or washed you or rubbed you with salt or wrapped you in cloths. No one took enough pity on you to do any of those things for you. When you were born, no one loved you. You were thrown out in an open field. And then I passed by and saw you squirming in your own blood. You were covered with blood, but I wouldn't let you die. I made you grow like a healthy plant. You grew strong and tall and became a young woman. Your breasts were well formed and your hair had grown, but you were naked. As I passed by again... I saw that the time had come for you to fall in love. I covered your naked body with my coat and promised to love you. Yes, I made a marriage covenant with you, and you became mine. I mean, doesn't this have parallels to Song of Solomon? Even if we were to deny that Song of Solomon refers to God's love for us in a husband-wife relationship, no, we have so many of these other passages here in the Bible. And this, this metaphor continues right into the New Testament. Or John the Baptist would say, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. The bridegroom is the one to whom the bride belongs. And Jesus, of course, told parables okay, that he is the husband. And he told people, do you expect the guests at a wedding party to be as sad as long as the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus is uh, the groom time and time again. And Paul would pick up on this, just one brief passage where he would say to the church, I'm jealous For you, with the jealousy of God himself, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. So we need to incorporate this uh, marriage analogy into our understanding of God. That needs to be central, I think, this this intense relationship. And then finally, the Bible ends with a marriage. You know the passage in Revelation 21, where John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, dressed like a bride, ready for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, perhaps this is what it means uh, to marry God. God lives with humans. God will make his home with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. All right, so that seems to be the climax, really, of um, all of scripture on this marriage metaphor. Okay, but I want to, I think there's something that kind of runs in parallel with this. Okay, the first couple, Adam and Eve. 
in Genesis 4.1, in the King James, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And um, it, during next year, probably after the Christmas break, we're going to get into Micah and Hosea and Jeremiah, maybe into Isaiah. And we will talk about the many, many times in the Old Testament where the, the significance to know God, it's not just in John. It's all the way through the Old Testament in these prophets. The, the significance of knowing God. And it, when Adam knew Eve, of course, they had a son. Okay, but there is a parallel to that in us knowing God. I won't list those Old Testament verses now, but you're familiar with the one we've talked about so many times in this Bible study. This is eternal life to know you. Okay, this refers to the kind of intimacy that a man and a woman have together. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. On earth I've given you glory by finishing the work you gave me to do. What was the work? I made your name or your character known to the people you gave me. Okay, so this knowing uh, relationship, okay, kind of like what Adam had with Eve, this intimacy, this personal, direct communication, contact with God, uh, that's always held out as the ideal. This is eternal life, to know God. And finally, an illustration here that always bothered me when I was young, the second coming. Jesus tells a parable, and there are people that can't understand Lord, Lord, in your name we spoke God's message. By your name we drove out many demons and performed many miracles. And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Of course, God knows every hair on their head, so it's not that he doesn't know them. This is in the biblical significance of to know. Okay, the meaning here is that these people, uh, they don't know God as a friend. They're not in a relationship with God. And it's interesting that this is held out here as this is what you're missing. You don't know me. So in other words, this uh, eternal life is to know God. It's not something that happens in the future. Uh, it is something that is supposed to happen now. But many things stand in the way of that. And the central image in the Old Testament of idolatry is uh, prostitution. Okay, so we are married to God. Okay, Israel was to be married to God. And so the, the way God that would describe their idolatry was frequently through describing them as prostitutes. And again, it's so redundant. We'll just maybe just list a few verses here because I want to make, a, I think, an important point about this. That in Jeremiah 2, we read the earlier passage in Jeremiah 2 about this marriage. Okay, but later on, God would say, For long ago you broke your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not serve. On every high hill and under every green tree you sprawled and played the whore. Okay, so choosing another husband other than God it is described in a prostitution um, kind of a model here. So the question is, what is idolatry for us? It's not, you know, worshiping little figures. Uh, what does this mean? In the New Testament, uh, Paul would say greed is a form of idolatry. And I think the essence of idolatry is really um, when anything replaces Christ as the center, uh, as the core of what we revolve around. Okay, we are to really see ourselves as in a, in a marriage relationship with God, with Jesus. And anything that replaces that is idolatry. And so I guess maybe the, the best way to think of this is, what does our mind dwell on? Uh, what are we thinking about um, in our thoughts? If it is, uh, you know, focus on wealth, accumulating things, and so on. Well, that's idolatry. That's prostitution uh, in the Old Testament. And we could list hundreds and hundreds of things, you know, an obsession with fashion, health, being in good shape, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes the important thing, 
and that our whole life revolves around that. That's a form of idolatry, um, an important form of idolatry. Nationalism. Are we so obsessed with politics and, and so on that that becomes the thought that is really the only thought that we have? God is a peripheral prayer in the morning or something. But otherwise, we're thinking about this one thing all the time. Again, we can make anything idolatry. I'm ashamed to admit uh, for myself here, just in looking back, I grew up in Oregon. You know, only have one sports team, Portland Trailblazers. And, uh, you know, in high school and college, man, I thought about that all the time. When's the next game? Because um, not many good things happen with the Trailblazers, so there wasn't a lot to cheer for for a long time. Um, but really, if I'm honest, that a lot of my private thought world, it revolved around basketball. I think especially for medical students, for those that um, you know, become professionals and so on, you're dedicating your whole life to studies, of course, and achievements. And that's, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, the question is, does it become uh, the core of everything? And it is very easy to go through life. And uh, what you really strive for is more achievement, more fame. Uh, to publish more studies, to be the best researcher in, in some area, to, to live for acclamation and praise of others. That is a, a very, very easy road um, to head down. And that becomes idolatry. Okay, There's nothing wrong with becoming the best researcher in HIV or whatever it might be, uh, but the question is, is that where we get our life? Okay, uh, Maybe a fair question to ask would be, well, we're so busy. I mean, how can I conceive of myself as uh, being married to God when I'm so busy. Um, and and uh, it's, um, it absolutely has to be that way. God needs to be central. Um, and, you know, this is a helpful Bible study for me because today I was in a panic getting over here. Rounds went late at the VA. I realized we didn't have water or plates, so I had to go to Costco. And I was there at 1135. And I enjoy going to Costco, but when you're in a hurry... You know, and uh, it was very full. People were enjoying their samples of carameled apple that was cut up. And, um, you know, felt like having a little megaphone. I'm late for a Bible study and everyone out of the way. But um, anyway, got into my car and I've never had the, I'm so far below empty. I don't know how I'm going to get out of the parking lot here. But that was a little stressful. And then getting over here, you know, the, the crosswalk. Uh, you know, you like it when students cross in one big cluster. They get out of the way quickly. But when there's one after another for a long ways, you know, you, know, you have to wave at the students and uh, taking a long time. And, um, you know, a number of things. Is, uh, am I aware of God's presence at that time? The parking lot over here. I don't know who you need to be to park in this parking lot. But you have to be uh, very special, apparently, because I have to drop the water off and then go park in the, in the back lot. And I've never taken the time to get a permit for teacher parking, so I'm looking for a student spot, you know, driving around. Anyway, uh, the question is, we all experience, this is the way life is, okay? And, but we need to be able to go through those kinds of things uh, with uh, an intense awareness of God's presence, okay? Or else we may do some, uh, some things we'll be ashamed of uh, later on. So uh, maybe just a, a last uh, description here. This, fa- this fruit is uh, not real. It's plastic fruit. Okay, all of those things that I mentioned earlier. Um, we want to think about idolatry. Uh, it really is trying to get nutrients, trying to get sustenance from anything other than God. All those things I, I listed, they're not bad. And I still watch basketball once in a while, all right? So it's not like we have to uh, uh, 
surrender. Well, some things we do need to surrender, but it's not like all of those things are bad. The question is, where are, is really the source of life? If the source of life becomes accomplishments, the praise of others, um, it's like eating plastic fruit. Okay, we waste away. We don't really get nourished. So I think this is the last verse here, what Paul is describing in Philippians. You remember, Paul was imprisoned, and he was, seemed to relish almost in the persecution. Okay, how could he have that mindset? Now you'd say this, not only those things, I reckon everything as complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable than knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. This is not knowing facts. Okay, this is an intimate, personal, relational knowledge of God, which ultimately is based on a true knowledge of what he's like in character. For his sake, I've thrown everything away. I consider it all as mere garbage so that I may gain Christ. So I think that, that needs to become the central reality. It's very difficult in our Western culture to adopt that mindset. We're accomplishment-driven. Okay, but we need to, to reorient ourselves to uh, this uh, marriage relationship. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for giving us uh, these many, many illustrations of the love that you have for us in animals, in all kinds of things that, that we can identify with our own eyes. Uh, please make this real to us, become very real in our lives, that we are aware of your presence in work and study and all of the other things that we do. And um, pray that that may change us, that we can better reveal who you are to those around us. Amen.